0: listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Again, I'm glad to be with you this morning. we don't, we don't always get a chance to talk about that prayer that you just heard, uh, why we take a moment before the sermon every Sunday to just spend time in prayer. Typically, one of our pastors uh, will be praying. Um, thank you, Pastor Chris, for doing that just a moment ago. Um, there's, there's often questions, especially if you, if you just are new to our church and you haven't been here very long, um, what, what kind of dirt you have on the church that you just prayed for. And and the answer is we don't have any dirt. There's no gossip that's going on. There's nothing that we know that is going on at a church like McDonough Presbyterian. Our heart in praying is that we would be lifting up brothers and sisters as they gather locally together to lift high the name of God this morning as well that God's word would go forth in those congregations as it goes forth here. So that's, that's the heart behind that prayer. Uh, that's why we typically pray for a missionary that our church is connected to in that prayer, a local church uh, that is nearby, and why we pray for the preacher, which I'm thankful for this morning. So uh, now you have some context for that prayer Uh, hopefully that will encourage you all the more as one of our pastors or someone is praying up here that you might be able to pray alongside, thanking the Lord, uh, giving him praise for what he's doing in among us and uh, in this very community. So uh, with that said, let's get in uh, to what we're doing this morning. Uh, We are South Point week one. I want us to walk away knowing more about the person and work of Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, about 10 years ago uh, now, my dad had been having a ton of chest pain. And so uh, his doctor ordered that he have a CT scan. And my dad, typically on the more pessimistic side of life, uh, created an optimist child like me, uh, which is crazy. But nevertheless, my dad is not like me. Okay, So he's a pessimist by nature. And he just knew that something was really wrong. And so he gathered, he, t- he told the family, I was the only child that was able to make it that day, but it was my mom, him, and myself were in the doctor's office receiving the results of that t- CT scan. And I remember when the doctor walked in with those scans, you just felt the heaviness in that room that morning. And all of a sudden, every bit of anxiousness and nervousness that we felt as a family was relieved in a second when the doctor said, I don't think there's anything to worry about. There's, there's some kind of scar tissue here, maybe some sarcoidosis, which is an inflammation of the lymph nodes. I think that you're good, Paul. And, and my dad said, so you're sure? I, I don't need a biopsy. And the doctor said, I, I don't think so. But if you want one, you can have one. And he looks around. Remember, my dad's a pessimist. And I'm like, you want one, don't you, dad? Like, we we could just tell. And my dad was like, I think I'm going to do a biopsy. And so he did it. He had a chest biopsy. And a couple of weeks later, when the biopsy results came back, my dad's diagnosis went from scar tissue or possible sarcoidosis to, in an instant, a non-curable, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Just like that. Just like that. He went from having to do nothing to having to do something for his life in an instant to chemotherapy immediately. And we are thankful the Lord didn't have to do this, but we are thankful today, almost a decade later, that he is in remission. But here's what I want you to hear as we walk forward this morning, that getting the treatment right depends entirely upon getting the diagnosis right. Don't miss that. Getting the treatment right depends entirely on getting the diagnosis right. Now, any one of us, Christian or non-Christian, can look around in this world right now and know without a shadow of a doubt that things are not right. Anybody anybody feel that? Anybody see that things are not right, man? I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on, but you can look around and you can see, man, something is wrong. The COVID-19 thing, something is wrong. Things are out of control. There is lots of sickness Maybe, maybe you see that something is wrong in your world. Something is wrong in your marriage, in your home, in your family. Something is wrong with our political system. Something is wrong within your own heart, man. You're walking around with lust that you do not know what to do with. Something is wrong. And so many of us are walking around depressed, what is wrong? There's rampant adultery, or perhaps you see the problem in this world as that other people are richer than you, or other people are poorer than you. Someone works less than you do. Maybe it's that, or perhaps the problem is something else. Maybe it's as trivial as that our Georgia teams can't seem to win a thing. Whatever, whatever's going on, something is really wrong. Now, here's the deal. Our culture and even our hearts personally, we are going to find any and every way possible to get rid of that mess. When we look around, we're going to do whatever it takes. Man, can I just step out of that pain? Can I just step out of the mess that is going on? And we do that in one of six ways. First, we might find ourselves trying to escape. I see the problem in the world, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull away. I'm going to escape from what is going on. We, we turn to things like alcohol. We turn to things like pills or even our own work. We find ourselves diving in headfirst in our work, and if we just work hard enough, we find ourselves escaping from the problems that are in the world. Two, we might make excuses. Any of you children? You might, you might make excuses that my parents are not good parents. If I have a problem, it's because they have created the problem, right? Or we say that we deserve more, we deserve better, which is why so many of us turn to things like pornography, destructive habits. Third, we might look to entertainment. We look to ways to turn off our brains, or we can't wait until we get that next moment of swiping up and down on our social media channels, or we can't wait until we get to binge that show on Netflix again. Four, we we might turn to the experts. Nothing against the experts, but if we put everything into them thinking that we're going to find perfection or wholesomeness in the experts that we would finally have the life we want or fifth, we look to experiences. If I can just make it to that next vacation, things will be okay in this life. If I can just make it to Harry Potter world, I'm gonna be doing just fine. If we could just save up enough money to take a family vacation, all these problems that we've been experiencing, they're gonna go away and we're gonna feel the relief that we have been longing for. But here's the problem. Human beings like you and I have been diagnosing the problem that we see all around us forever. They've been doing that since the beginning of time. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, as they sinned in the Garden of Eden, they put us on this very trajectory. And no one, no one has figured it out in of themselves. Because the reality is, you cannot fight the evil that is all around us with the evil that is inherent in our very hearts. We must look outside of ourselves for hope, for treatment, for a cure. We can't both be the problem and the solution. But let's face it, I'll be honest, the church has also been guilty of giving the same solution as the rest of the world. That if we believe the lies sometimes, that if we could just get a packed enough auditorium, I know that's not kosher nowadays, but it used to be like a year and a half ago. If we could just pack everybody in here, things would be much better. If we could just be culturally relevant enough, if we could just do enough social work in our community, then things would be better if I could just craft the right message, that you would hear it and it would pierce you perfectly and you would think that I was the greatest communicator that the world has ever known. If I could just do that, things would be good. Things would be better. If we could just speak to the right age demographic so that our church could grow in the right ways, if we can grow our bank account and our reserves to a certain amount, or if we can do whatever we can to keep people in this room instead of doing whatever we can to form people into the image of the son of Jesus Christ, then we'll find a perfect church. The church has been guilty of the same solutions that the world has been using. So what has happened within the church? We've actually given people what they wanted instead of what they needed. It's, it's just like me with my own child or my children. If I were to give them chocolate chip cookies for every meal, they would eat it up and would want more of them, right? That's, that's what they would do, and they would never say, could you please, Dad, give me a green bean? They would never ask for that because they feel as though that I'm giving something that they absolutely want, but is it what they really need? Where am I going with this? Again, a misdiagnosis of the mission of the church has led to a wrong treatment being applied to a terminal disease. So as we walk through this series, we are South Point. Before the what, before we get into the reasons of what we do, how we accomplish the mission of God that he's called us to in this local community and throughout the rest of the world, which we will do the next couple of weeks, Before we get to the what of South Point, we must be reminded of the why. That our greatest desire, that our greatest need is to be a people who understand the presence of God. That we are drawn into relationship with a relational God, the Father, Son, and His Holy Spirit. And that that is the thing that we most desperately need. And that if you and I would experience the relationship that the Father has granted for us to have, that that is where we would find life. That is where we would find peace. And so I want us to feel together this morning that our heartbeat as a church, as a people, as individuals is knowing more of Jesus. For the past several years, the buzzword in evangelicalism or Christendom on living all of life for Jesus has been the phrase gospel-centered. Anybody ever heard that phrase? Gospel-centered. I have no reason whatsoever this morning to trash that phrase. In fact, I like it, but I have every reason to define it for you. Because it's like on everything now. Gospel-centered mission, gospel-centered church, gospel-centered books, gospel-centered curriculums. It feels like this catch-all phrase that as long as you put gospel-centered in whatever in front of whatever you're doing, that it's okay. Hey, man, it's okay because I'm going on a gospel-centered cruise this summer. I like to eat gospel-centered avocados. And whatever you put that phrase in front of, all of a sudden, it becomes okay, and it's good for you to intake, right? Gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that, but what does it mean? Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Now, it's not going to address gospel-centered cruises explicitly, but I think that we're going to get where the writer, the apostle Paul, is going, We're going to be looking in chapter 1 this morning to answer that question. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? What does it mean to be a gospel-centered people? Because here was a church in the city of Colossae that had been strong in their faith, but they were being deceived by some false teaching. And that false teaching was keeping them from where they needed to be, which was maturing as Christ followers. Now, it's appropriate for us as a church to to look at this because the Apostle Paul, as he diagnoses the problem, he also administers a really practical solution. But I want you to get this. He doesn't first move to a list on how to fix everything that is going on in this church. He doesn't say if you're going to meet this many times per week that false teaching that you've been deceived by, it's just going to go away. If you'll give this amount of money to your church, everything is just going to be better in your life. And your church is going to make a a huge turnaround. And then and only then will you have a gospel-centered church and a maturing Christian life. The Apostle Paul doesn't make that his aim No, in fact, he says, this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is. That's how he starts his letter. So if if you've located Colossians, would you go ahead and stand with me as I read God's word? Would we honor it by standing this morning? Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read through verse 23. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Coase, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. not going to be able to cover this word by word, verse by verse. When I, when I first came to South Point 11 years ago, in a couple of months, we were walking through this book. And this is one of the reasons that uh, the Lord drew me, I think, to South Point. It was just hearing Pastor Mark just exposit faithfully. I think we were taking three words at a time going through the book of Colossians, and it was so incredibly sweet, and maybe we'll have the opportunity to do that again in the future, but we're going to do a really big overview over the next three weeks uh, of, of places in this book. Um, but, but as you hear this, I want us to define gospel-centered this morning, and I want us to, to first see that gospel-centered is defined by the Bible. Gospel-centered is defined by the Word of God. We see that in verses 3 through 6. And here's the deal. Perhaps you're on the fringes of Christianity this morning. We're, We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you have joined with us, and you're exploring the claims of Jesus Christ as he's put forth in his Word. It's important that you hear me say that the Bible gets to define us who we are, who we serve, who the Lord of all the earth is. We don't just make up things about who Jesus is as a church and look for ways that we can prove that in the Bible. Our aim is to open the Bible as God has revealed it to us, preserved it for us, and we then get an opportunity to look at and find out more about the living God and how he has revealed himself. And for the Christian, if you're here this morning, brother and sister, maybe you've been using the Sunday morning gatherings as your only intake for the Holy Bible. I, I don't say this as a means to condemn you this morning because we have all been in those seasons. But rather as a humble challenge to you, if this is the one message that the creator of heaven and earth, the entire cosmos has inspired and preserved so that we might know him. It is absolutely worthy of your devotion because we desire to know him more. Our heartbeat is knowing more of Jesus. So with that said, gospel-centered is defined by the Bible. Now, in verse 3, we have a standard introduction from Paul. That's, that's what he's typically writing when he writes a letter to a people or a congregation, that he wants his church or the church that he's writing to, to know that they're always in his prayers. We always thank God for you when we pray, constantly thanking the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he moves on into specifics in verse four. There is much thankfulness we see there to God in prayer for the Colossians because Paul and others keep hearing of their tremendous faith in Christ and in particular their love for each other. And verse five is what we can't miss. They have faith in Christ and they have love for one another because of a very specific reason. They have it, they have these things because of, Their hope is laid up for them in heaven. Paul goes on to say, They've heard this before in the word of the truth, which is what? The gospel, the text says. And we go to the Bible to find out what God says about himself and his very creation. We go to the Bible to find out what the gospel is, the good news of his son, Jesus Christ, what it means to be gospel-centered. We go to the Bible to find out our biggest problems. When we look around and see all the chaos and all the mess within us and outside of us, we go to the Bible and we see what those really are. When we go to the Bible, we find out that it is not just a segmented storybook filled with all kinds of moral lessons, but that it is a grand redemptive narrative about the person and work of Jesus Christ and what the Father is doing in redeeming a people unto himself, that Jesus is the true and better Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, all of these guys in the Old Testament, and that our goal in reading the Bible, is not so that we would come away being a moral people, a brave people, a heroic man like many of these Old Testament figures, that we aren't even to, to look at these individuals and say, man, I must try harder in the Christian life, but that we are to look to Christ. He's the point of the Bible. He's the point of the Bible, And so before, again, we look at the what of South Point, we must look at the why. Because Christ Jesus is worthy, because he's preeminent. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, the apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians of the gospel that was preached to them, and then he defines it. Many of us are familiar with this passage, and it says this. Just one of the most simple explanations of the gospel in all the Bible, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel. That's the good news of Christianity. And we know this because God has defined it in his word, the Bible. So how does this or how should it The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ impact our church. How does that flesh itself out for us as a people who say, man, I am surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to walk in greater fellowship and measure with the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, practically speaking, for just a moment, I want to take our Sunday gathering as an example Uh, You hear, if you've been with us for some time, we often in announcements will say, hey, our liturgy or our flow of service this morning is going to be divided into four parts. Anybody remember what that first part is? God is holy, that we are. Somebody said worship. We are absolutely worshiping the Lord as a people when we gather and worship. But we want to, at the first part of our service, recognize that God is absolutely holy. Uh, we, we want it to be overtly focused on the living, reigning Christ. That's the focus of our service. So we, we think when we think about God is holy, we are immediately after that bombarded with our own sinfulness. So we are reminded not only that God is holy, but that we are sinful. You might remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where he finds himself in a vision in the heavenly throne room, and he's immediately there confronted with his own sin. And what does he say? He says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's immediately, upon the holiness of God, upon seeing the Lord for who he is, he immediately finds out that he is absolutely sinful. God is holy, man is sinful, and then we move into a segment of our service where we're reminded that Jesus saves us. That Jesus Christ, who is God, took on flesh, he dwelt among us, he lived the perfect life and died on the cross, shedding his blood for our redemption, that those who would confess Christ as Lord and trust in him by faith could have the forgiveness of sins that we also desperately need. That we would not get what we deserve because of our sin, which is eternal death, And we remember that truth each week as we partake and we will do today in a simple meal called communion. Finally, our service concludes every single week with a benediction. And today we'll actually read that benediction together. These aren't just formalities that we would gather here every single week and just do the same thing. But it is so that we would, as a collective people, remember who God is, that he is absolutely holy, that in light of a holy God, we are sinners, and that he has sent his son, Christ Jesus, to save a sinful people, and that he not only saves us, but he in turn sends us, so that the rest of the world might be filled with his presence and his glory. It's like when Isaiah realizes in that vision that his sins have been atoned for that he cries out and he says what? Here I am, Lord. Send me. Because we aren't a people who just realize that God is holy and that we are sinful. We're a people that know that God has done the work on our behalf so that we might be reconciled unto him. And he hasn't just left us there, but he's empowered us by his spirit, giving us fuel to go out into this world and tell other people, be reconciled unto this holy God. That's good news for us as a people. That's our heartbeat as the people of God at South Point, knowing more of Jesus. And it's the same for life groups and DNA groups. It's not just the Sunday gathering. We, we gather on Sunday mornings and we scatter throughout the rest of the week in life groups where there are smaller groups of individuals of all different life stages. And we're gathering together, we're rehearsing the truths of the gospel, we're remembering what the sermon was about, we're walking through that text, and we as a people long to hold one another captive to the truths that we've heard in that Sunday sermon. And then from there, we want to move out into our neighborhoods, cities, communities. We want to invite those of us uh, who have neighbors and co-workers into those life groups. In fact, You have a a card on, on the chair under you, probably under your bottom, right? And there's actually two cards, and they look the same on the front, but they're actually different on the back. So there is one card that has life groups on the back of it. Well, actually, they're a little different because there's a word, and it's more glossy, that card, if you feel it. And you say, this is the glossy card, that's the life group card. And on the back of that are all kinds of life groups that our church has to offer. And here's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. We just want to give you an opportunity to not just be spectators in the Sunday gathering, but to move as a next step into more and greater community with those believers in this church. We're just asking that you would take this step now. Maybe you've been sitting on the sidelines for a really long time. You say, I really haven't seen a need. What's the point? Sunday gathering is more than enough. I'm just pleading with you that you might think about consider being a part of a life group so that you could dive into greater community with God's people as he has given us this great blessing. And so on the back, there's all kinds of life groups for you to look at just for you to know that first life group in the top left where it says Stonewall is actually meeting on Thursday nights. So um, just for you to know. And here's what I'm also going to ask. So those of you who have never been connected to a life group before, fill that out and take it to the to back to the, next, uh, to, to the right of the next step table. Pastor Mike will be there at the close of the service to answer any questions that you might have. Just take this card to him so that we could connect with you and, and get you plugged into a life group. So find one that looks good, or you can say, I don't know, but I want to be a part, something like that, and we can help you with that over the next several weeks. Also, for those of you who are already participating in a life group, would you still fill this out? Um, This is just a means for us as pastors to take a greater care in shepherding you over this next season so that we might have a record, a list, an identifier uh, as to what life group that you might be participating in. And then the other card is a DNA group card, and I'll I'll be quick. Um, But this is just... Another way in that we might gather with groups of three to four same-sex individuals so that we could discover God's word together, we could nurture one another's hearts in that endeavor, and that we can act according to God's word. And so uh, those groups meet all over the place once a week or every other week. And if you're not a part of one of those, uh, we would love for you to sign up. There's all kinds of um, availability on the back. Just circle what might work best for you, and we'll try to get you connected to one of those in the the coming days. Also, again, if you're a part of a DNA group, we want to know that still. So just go ahead and let us know who's a part of your group. That's that. That's a super practical part. Um, But but I, I want you to hear practically how Jesus Christ, how his preeminence fleshes itself out in the life of this very church family. It's not just a rote endeavor. It's not just something that we talk about. We don't just communicate about Jesus Christ, but we are a people that are surrendered fully to him. So. We're not a gospel-centered people because we feel like we have taken the ethical high ground or because we're caring for those in our community in a certain way. We aren't a gospel-centered people because we are growing as a church numerically. We are are a gospel-centered people as we submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ as defined in his word, which is the Bible. So, questions for us. Are we going to be known as a people who are sitting open handed before God's word and are letting Him define us how we are going to live? I'm going to say that again because that didn't make any sense. Are we going to be known as a people who are sitting open handed before God's word and are willing to let Him define us and how we live by it? Are you letting your family live in light of the Bible? dad, mom. Are you willing to be known as gospel-centered, a gospel-centered Bible believer in an age that is increasingly antagonistic towards that end? Gospel-centered is defined by the the Bible, and therefore we must be people of God's word. Second, gospel-centered is defined by where you go for validation. For the past several months, on on most Wednesdays, myself and another brother have been uh, walking the neighborhoods near our McDonald's church building and knocking on doors. And our message has been really simple. Hey, knock, knock. Uh, We're we're Christians. Uh, We want everyone to know about the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Do you know what the gospel is? And we have had a, a whole bunch of answers, and a lot of people don't come to the door because everybody has a ring doorbell now. Um, so we have a lot of uh, ring doorbell conversations, but some through that process say, no, I, I don't know anything about the gospel of Jesus, believe it or not. And we get an opportunity right then and there to explain it. Others say, no, I'm not interested. Some say, yes, but I'm not interested. Like that, that is kind of what we've heard a lot of, yes but I don't like you, (laughs) you know, and I get it. Uh, And a few say yes, and we get to ask, well, what would you say the gospel is? Like, what is the hope that you claim that you have? And at some point with either of those who have said no, and we have an opportunity to explain more, or those who have said yes and begin to give a gospel explanation, we usually get to the question in some form or fashion, if you were to stand before a holy God today, would he say you would go to heaven or hell? Now, without fail, everyone says heaven, and then they begin to automatically use their behavior as a justification as to why the holy God would allow them into heaven. I'm a pretty good person, they say. So we begin to ask, you've heard this before, have you ever told a lie? Yeah, 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 I've told a lie. Okay, Uh, have you ever stolen anything? And, and uh, this past week, a guy said, nope, never stolen anything, to which my brother said, what about music? You ever stole music? And the guy was like, oh, yeah, yeah. What about, uh, you know, time from your employer if you have a time clock? Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, um, uh, what do you call someone who lies? A liar. Good job. What do you call somebody who steals? A thief, a robber, a stealer, Right. <laughs> So, according to the Ten Commandments, I'm hearing right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm with you, bro, that you are a lying thief. Is it? I guess so. So, if you were to stand before a holy God today as a lying thief, where do you think that that holy God would send you? And they begin to say, I guess, hell. You see, When we measure ourselves against others on this earth, we can always find reasons to approve of ourselves. But when we are measured against the holiness of God, we realize that we've all fallen short. And I don't stand in front of that man or woman thinking that, man, I've got this whole thing figured out and that I find myself in a different position than they No, I'm making it clear that I absolutely, apart from Christ, find myself there as well, that I probably am a greater sinner than they. I'm I'm recognizing that very fact, that we in our sinful state are far from holy, undeserving of any of God's kindness. Nevertheless, we still find that we go to God hoping So many of us hope that we will impress him on that final day. Lord, I've done this or that. Please help me with X, Y, or Z. Or perhaps we just know that God couldn't be impressed with us. In fact, we feel that God is very disappointed with us. So in sorrow, we just start running away from God. We say that we don't need God. In gladness, we we decide to forget God. Here's what Paul comforted the Colossians with, beginning in verse 9. Look there in the text with me says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, he, if he left it there, we still may feel a little hopeless, that indeed we must in of ourselves find a way to please a holy God. And figure out how to bear fruit in every good work. And that sounds absolutely exhausting. And if we find ourselves there, man, there is so much more. There is good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul continues in verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father. I want you to get this. Who qualified us who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The key is there in verse 12. Listen, if you are a Christian, if you find yourself being ushered into the eternal presence of God on that final day, do you know why that will be the case? It won't be because you did enough good works, because you are a lying thief. It will be because you were qualified by the Father. It will be because the loving, holy God created a plan that you might have redemption by his son, Christ Jesus in whom there is redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So as a people, where do we go for validation? It is not to our works. It is not to our buildings. It is not to our children, our success. It's not to our happiness. No, we look for validation in the Son, Christ Jesus, and we find that he is more than enough. Gospel-centered is defined by where we go for validation, and we know that we have been qualified by faith in Christ by the Father, finally, And I'll be quick here. Gospel-centered is defined by finding beauty in Jesus above all else. The Apostle Paul, remember, knew that there were areas in which the church at Colossae needed improving. There were discipleship issues that had to be addressed and that they were going to be addressed. Their maturity in Jesus Christ was at stake. The purity of the gospel was at stake. But his letter begins with the beauty of Jesus above all else. Because if we can be transfixed with Jesus, those other things just seem to fall in place, don't they? My daughter has been asking for the last several weeks to go fishing. She's never been fishing before. I have no idea where she got this. I've never been fishing, except when I was a little boy, and I don't really have a fond memory of it. And so she starts asking, and I guess she didn't have a a real ear with her dad, and so she goes to her grandfather and so Poppy buys her a fishing pole and gets her a, a, a tackle box. I think that's what they're called. And, uh, and I was invited to go along with them yesterday. And we're, we're out there fishing on the Tassahaw Reservoir, and we're just having a good old time. But I can tell that Piper really wants to catch a fish. And I want her to catch a fish as her dead. I want to see her eyes light up. I want to see her just you know, beaming with joy. And it's not happening. There's some other people that appear to be pros near us, or at least have fished a couple more times than I have. and And they're not catching anything either. And eventually, I see just some really, really small. I don't even know if you consider them fish, just right here at the dock. And so I let that line down. And that, those fish just catch a hold of that worm. And I, I reel that thing in. And man, you should have seen my little daughter just beaming from ear to ear. Dad, I caught a fish. And Poppy pulls the fish off the, off the hook. And he's just holding that little fish. And I'm telling you, that fish... within the palm of his hand. And Poppy immediately says, baby, you caught the biggest fish out here today. Nobody else has caught a bigger fish than you, which is true. (laughs) And she said, I caught the biggest fish. And she's holding it. And we get home that day and we're telling grandma, we're telling mom and everybody that we came into contact with yesterday afternoon and evening, she says, dad, can you show them the picture of my fish? It was so big. It's like, this is how every fisherman's story starts, right? (laughs) But she is just so very happy about what she has done. And she wants everybody to see the picture of her accomplishment, that she had caught this huge fish in the water. And she was so excited. And and as I was thinking about that last night, mixed in with this text, I just kept thinking, I kept thinking, man, what if we were transfixed on the gospel of Jesus like that? What if we were transfixed with that. And so as I read verses 15, as I read verses 15 through 23 again, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prayerfully evaluate your heart before the Lord. Are you transfixed on his son like that? Listen. Talking about Jesus, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. Do you hear the goodness of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God? And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. This podium, the seat that you're sitting in, your clothes, your heart, your organs, all things are held together by him. Verse 18, and he's the head of this body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is who Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is, who has offered himself for us as a ransom to pay for our sin debt on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is who Jesus is, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of of which I Paul became a minister again are you transfixed on the son of the living god who we just read about in verses 15 through 23 the preeminent son of god like my daughter with was with that picture of that little fish And even if everyone else in all of the world sees the living God, the preeminent Son of God, as small and insignificant, are you convinced that he is absolutely amazing and worthy of every bit of your life, worthy of your worship, worthy of your life that you just want to know more about him? Perhaps you're here this morning and think, I think that there was a time in my life when I was convinced of Jesus Christ that way, but all the cares of my life have stepped in. My life is so difficult at the moment. I am overwhelmed with the marriage that I am in. I am overwhelmed with the bill paying and the work and the occupation, fixing meals at the end of the day. I am, I'm overwhelmed with recreational sports being uh, picking back up, you name it. We think I barely have time to binge my favorite Netflix show now. You hear the ridiculousness of that? And yet, we feel it. We feel all the strains of this life just pushing in and pushing us against being in right fellowship with the Son of the Living God. Paul wrote this letter to a people who knew the gospel, but had been deceived into thinking that there was something out there that was better, something more pressing. So, hear these verses was, as we just read them. I want you to continue to meditate on those very verses about the good news of the gospel. That all things have been created by him. That Jesus Christ was the agent of creation, forming and fashioning everything out of nothing. And if he is creator, then he is God. Herman Bovink said this, God and God alone is man's highest good. Everything is not only made by him, but the text says through him and for him. Our hope is not that God is just good to us, that he would provide us good gifts in this life, that he might give us the things that we think we need, but that he is good for us. He's our provision. We don't seek him in order to get all of these pleasures in this life. We get the highest thing in seeking the Lord himself. Verse 19, we see that in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and we can know him. John 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John Calvin said, The final goal of the blessed life rests in the knowledge of God. Do you know Jesus Christ, like the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1? Are you surrendered to Him? A God who is inviting you into relationship with His Son, Christ Jesus? Do you know Him? Are you filled with the joy that comes along with knowing him? Wherever you're looking for a cure to life's problems other than Christ, it will not satisfy. King Solomon, who had it all, looked at everything that he had, and he surmised at the end that it was all vanity. This is not about self-improvement but self-denial. Not about a throne, but a cross. Nothing is more beautiful, pure, limitless, true, and holy than God. So when we gather on Sunday mornings, we gather to sing loudly. We gather to pray together as a people. We gather together to mourn. When sickness, destruction has hit our homes, We need a regular, tangible reminder of who he is and what he's done in light of our sin, and we'll do that in just a moment in communion. We need the presence of God, not better programs, philosophies, even processes. Even though many would consider that success, a great church, South Point, is not fueled by, a great church that is not fueled by a great God is a great tragedy. Remember, our heartbeat is knowing more of Jesus knowing more about Jesus.